We will once again have two scripture readings today. Uh, the first being in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, um, verses 1 through 4. And so once you've turned there, you can stand with me and we'll read that first. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught." And then the second reading will be from Acts, chapter 1 as well, and the first four verses. Or sorry, the first three verses. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I promise that after uh, this Sunday, we will be back to one text reading uh, for the foreseeable future. But... uh, before we head into Acts, the, the book of Acts, which we will be starting next week and hopefully for some time in our near future, uh, before we go there, we have to understand uh, Luke at a really high-level overview. Remember, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are both written by the same person, by the same uh, individual, and they're written to the same person and to the same individual. Uh, th- this is important because a lot of the themes that are started in Luke, eventually develop and flourish and grow to their completion in Acts. And so if you're seeing the flowering of something, you have to also understand kind of what the seed form was as it began to develop early on. Um, if you think about another, another thing like this, in the Old Testament, uh, Jeremiah writes the book of Jeremiah. He writes his whole treatise, la- lamenting over the people and their apostasy. Uh, Jeremiah is also the prophet who writes the book of Lamentations. And Lamentations is written uh, about the same subject matter, by the same person, kind of in that same voice. And it's a, it's a lament over the whole city um, and really the, the state of Israel. And Lamentations, we are helped in understanding Lamentations by understanding Jeremiah because he wrote both of those works. Similarly, if you have ever read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, there are statements going on in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that really are, you, you're helped in understanding what they mean when you read the Gospel of John, written by the same author, uh, not to the same audience in that case, but written by the same author with the same points and the same agenda. Uh, similarly, if you have ever read First and Second Corinthians, uh, you read Second Corinthians, Paul's making reference to things that he alluded to in First Corinthians, and he's writing as the same author to the same audience, making similar kinds of, of points in both those letters. And so if you just read 2 Corinthians, you're kind of getting a, a, a neutered version of the full message that Paul has for that, for that church. And so, two, we want to be good students of Scripture. We want to understand not just what Acts has to say in itself, but also 
what are the themes in Luke that help develop into the book of Acts. So today is going to be somewhat of what we call an overview sermon of Luke so that we can get those themes back to the forefront of our minds and so that when we pick up next week, you'll at least be more refreshed than if you were to have to think back to like two or three years ago sometimes for some of the themes that we'll be touching in Acts. So I just want to point out those, those common through lines first. So in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Luke is acknowledging the, the purpose of why he's writing this book, right? So he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, and just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you would have certainty concerning those things which you have been taught. Luke's telling us not just what he's doing, but also why he's doing it, right? So the purpose of Luke's gospel is not just to write something and then to publish it out into the world. Um, In fact, uh, you've possibly been uh, unfortunate enough to read a book that has been published just because an author could have published another book on a topic. Uh, They're generally uh, filler books. They're generally not helpful. uh, They're generally not all that edifying to read. Luke is, is writing not just as someone who is a, has a career as a writer and so therefore he's publishing another book that his audience must read. He's got a purpose to why he's writing. And that purpose is really important, uh, important enough that he wants Theophilus to get the message, not just with one uh, very lengthy book, but also with a second edition written to the, the same man. And so in, in these first four verses, he tells us a number of things, that he's writing primarily to talk about Jesus. Uh, he, he doesn't say Jesus. He's going to introduce us to Jesus in a, in a coming chapter. Um, but he, he writes and he says, uh, I'm writing about the things which have been accomplished among us. So we've just finished Luke 24 only a couple weeks ago. What do you think he's alluding to? The things which have been accomplished among us. Jesus' life, ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection, and now ascension as well. Um, and not just that, but if you kind of see him writing also in, in view with the book of Acts, um, he's probably also talking about the church expanding and growing and the preaching of the word of God being accomplished. So when he says the things which have been accomplished, he's writing essentially a treatise like, how did this thing get started? And he's, he's alluding that he himself is not an eyewitness or a minister. He says he got this data from others who were eyewitnesses and ministers. He's likely alluding in that case to the women who saw Jesus resurrected, also probably to the apostles. So he's giving his sources, and he's saying that the purpose of this is to put together an orderly account, that's verse 3, but verse 4, so that we might have certainty concerning the things which have been taught. So part of having certainty about the things which we have been taught as Christians is understanding who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how he accomplished it. That's That's part of our certainty too. And I'm not just saying that in a vacuum, like these words apply to you. Think about who Theophilus is. If Theophilus is a real person, and most scholars think that he is, um, Theophilus is someone who's existing in and around the first century. He's a contemporary of Luke. He's likely living shortly after Jesus has accomplished all these things. He's likely a new Christian, uh, or a Christian who has been walking only for a short period of time. And he's a Christian who needs encouragement about the things which he has been taught. So what does Luke do? He doesn't Uh, go and try to give him these huge doctrinal treatises about 
things that his faith will lead into. He, he goes back to the basics about what Theophilus has been taught as a springboard for Theophilus' continued faithfulness and persistence. And uh, he thinks that that is really important for Theophilus, let's say, staying the course as a Christian. And I would say that understanding the gospel, who Jesus is, is important for us staying the course as Christians as well. And uh, you don't need to turn there, but I'm just going to read verse 1 of Acts. Uh, Luke says, in the first book, that's the gospel of Luke, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So this is what he's, he's talking about. He's saying, in Luke, what did I deal with? I dealt with everything that Jesus began to do and to teach until the time of his ascension. And then in Acts, he says, I'm going to turn now to see what has been accomplished in the wake of those things. So who is Jesus? What did he came to, to do and to teach? That's what we're going to try to have in our overview uh, as we look through it. So that's the purpose statement for, for Luke. So we're just going to, we're not going to be able to go through all of it. But there's this one main thing, and it's the title of the sermon again, that Jesus is the risen Lord. This is the purpose for why Luke writes the Gospel of Luke to Theophilus. He wants Theophilus to know that Jesus is the risen Lord. But just because Jesus is the risen Lord, that's, just, that's like a, a fact. Um, he's also going to kind of allude to what does that imply for life and for living as Christians. Um, uh, maybe, maybe one way you can think about this is uh, Jesus as the risen Lord is, is a bare idea and it doesn't, really ha- it doesn't really hold much unless we understand what are the implications of that as well. So for instance, let's say uh, you, uh, you know cognizantly what a door is. There's a door back there and a door over there and there's some over here. Uh, you know cognizantly what a door is. Uh, you know the general shape of it, that it has a handle, all those kinds of things. But let's say you did nothing with that information and you were trying to enter a room. There's two doors you could leave this room with or enter it with. Um, and you know intellectually what a door is, but you don't do anything with that information. Uh, the, the knowledge of what a door is doesn't help you all that much uh, when, you're, when you're going forth and living, right? It's a silly example, but I think it's just as silly to say that Jesus is Lord and to not do anything with that information, to not live differently as a result of that. So Jesus is Lord, the risen Lord, Um, And Luke is telling us how we ought to understand that. So uh, look at Luke chapter 2, verse 30. This is one place we're going to drop down and see what is the purpose of Jesus' life. Luke chapter 2, verse 30. This is Simeon. He uh, he has seen the the new baby Jesus in the temple, and he he sings this kind of hymn of praise out to to God. And uh, I'm going to pick it up just in verse 30 says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So who is Jesus in his advent, in his coming, what we just celebrated last week? Uh, he is the salvation of God manifest. Here Simeon says, God's salvation is manifest in Jesus. My eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared it in the presence of all peoples, meaning uh, it was shepherds who saw it, the angels witnessed it, uh, the stable boy has witnessed it. I mean, everyone has seen it. Herod has witnessed it. He's even, uh, as we hear from other gospel accounts, Herod's a a negative witness towards it, but he's a witness to it as well. And and what is this salvation to do? Uh, It is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's new information for them. We're going to see that especially in the book of Acts. And it's also a glory for Israel. 
because it's the completion of Israel's scriptures that is coming now in Jesus. So what's Luke saying to Theophilus? Jesus, this newborn baby, is the salvation that God has planned as the Old Testament has spoken about it. Jesus says something quite similar uh, when he's walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. This resurrection is all that the Old Testament has predicted, and it's the hope of the people. It is salvation. But what does it mean that Jesus saves? Well, we have to flesh that out a little bit. Uh, If you look at Luke chapter 3 and John the Baptist, Luke chapter 3, verse 3, you'll see at least initially what does salvation have in view, right? So Simeon has said that Jesus is salvation, God's salvation, but we might say salvation from what? Well, uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 3, and he, that is John, he's the forerunner of Jesus, went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So how does Jesus save people? What kind of savior is he? He's a savior from sins. And what that means is, and you might say, well, he doesn't mention Jesus here. Well, if you look down further in the text, um, verse 16 of chapter 3 says, this is John answering them whether or not he is the savior. And he says, no, uh, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's saying his baptism is kind of a, a prelude, a predictor of, uh, a welcoming towards Jesus's salvation, Jesus's baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, and so when John says repent for the forgiveness of sins, he's not saying that he accomplishes the forgiveness of sins. He's saying he's preparing them for reception of Jesus who accomplishes the forgiveness of sins. So Luke's telling us Jesus is a savior through Simeon. He's telling us that he's a savior of sins through John the Baptist. And then if you look at one more place uh, in Luke chapter uh, in the early parts of Luke, Luke chapter 4, verse 19. This is a, a text I've looked at a number of times as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4, verse 19. Uh, this is now Jesus' salvation as proclaimed by Jesus. What is, he, what is he to do? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus is the Savior, Savior of sins, and his salvation proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that, that text is quoting from Isaiah, and the Isaiah text is quoting from Leviticus chapter 25, which speaks of the year of jubilee, the year of liberation for the people. Leviticus 25 is being quoted in Isaiah, uh, and I, what Isaiah is saying is whoever the Messiah is, when he comes, what he's going to do is he's going to take that jubilee year, and he's going to be the ultimate manifestation and uh, actuation of jubilee. So, uh, what is the year of Jubilee? Well, if you're an Old Testament student, uh, this will be a quick review for you. But the year of Jubilee is basically a time when Israelites who were enslaved or indebted in some capacity would have been freed from that debt that they owed. And it happened every so often, about every 49 years. Uh, The year of Jubilee would happen, and if you were a slave, uh, you would be freed from your obligation to serve your master. And the year of Jubilee is not just for uh, Jewish people, uh, if, if the Jewish people had slaves who were of other nationalities, they would also have to set those slaves free in the year of Jubilee. Jubilee is a time uh, of material uh, freedom. It is a time of financial freedom. This is what it is in Leviticus 25. 
So when, when Jesus says of himself, uh, quoting from Isaiah, that the Messiah is to proclaim this year of the Lord's favor, this jubilee year, uh, if you just look up a little bit into verse 18, what does this mean? It proclaims liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is all that language from Jubilee. Well, what he's doing is he's saying that he, the Christ, is a savior, a savior from sins, but a savior who is the Jubilee that has been expected. What that means is not just material salvation. So uh, I'm saying that because I just read to you the text where John the Baptist says it's a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And here Jesus is taking another image, material freedom, and he's kind of combining those images together. And Luke is doing that intentionally to say that Jesus says the year of Jubilee and John the Baptist says repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then as the narratives unfold from the rest of chapter four, basically up to the crucifixion, something that we see is that Jesus is not as is a, is a Savior who, who does save sinners, but he saves sinners in their totality, in their entirety. Or we might say it this way, he saves sinners wholly. Not H-O-L-Y, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly. So he, he saves them in their entirety. And what I mean by that is, is he doesn't come as a Savior so that you could escape this mortal body that you have and rapture yourself up into heaven and exist as a disembodied spirit for the rest of eternity. That, that, that is how some people, I think, unfortunately expect salvation to go. And if you're a Christian, that is, a, that is not the view of salvation that either the Old Testament or the New Testament has in store. In fact, uh, in the shepherd's prayer today that we read uh, from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul belabors this exact point, that salvation is not a disembodied future experience that we have as ghosts in the sky with God. Uh, your hope of salvation, Christian, is not that you would escape material life and dwell forever in a spirit world. That is not at all what salvation is. And Luke is telling us this as well, because Jesus is the Jubilee, which is in some sense a very much physical manifestation of refreshment and liberation for the people. He saves his people wholly. So uh, just look at a couple of texts. For example, Luke chapter 5, uh, one, of the, one of the best examples of this, Luke chapter 5 verse 17, begins to tell the story of Jesus healing a paralytic man. Now, this is a, a gospel story that kind of, you know, you'll hear this story everywhere. This story is a very popular story. And, and the story basically is that there's this man, he has his, these friends, and his friends know that Jesus has been rumored to heal people, and they know that their friend needs healing. Their friend is paralyzed. And so what they do is they try to go find Jesus to see him, uh, they, they find no place to access Jesus, so they go to the roof, they carve out a space in the roof, they let their friend down, and in the middle of one of Jesus' sermons, he sees this man kind of being lowered through the ceiling, and he deals with him accordingly. And where the text picks up, or where I'd like to pick up, uh, is in verse uh, 20. This is Jesus, and when he, Jesus, saw there the friend's faith, he said, man, he's talking to the paralyzed man, man, your sins are forgiven you. So here's the forgiveness of sins being announced that John the Baptist was talking about. And notice the reaction of the crowd. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Right? Only God, only Yahweh can forgive sins. He's the only one who can make that kind of statement. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? And which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And what happens? Immediately he rose up before them and picked up what, had been, what he had been laying down on and went home, glorifying God. So Jesus saves people wholly. He's a savior of the whole person, which means body and soul. And you see that in a foretaste here with this man, where he's not only forgiven of sins immediately, but he's freed from material affliction, uh, namely his, his broken body, also immediately. Both of them happen. One of them is visible clearly to us, and the other one is not. But what Jesus is doing is showing us what kind of a savior he is. A savior, yes, of sins, but sin affects more than just the soul. Sin affects every part of the human person. Uh, as, as Paul says in Romans, sin is the thing that caused death to enter the world. So sin is the thing that caused decay and, and chaos and brokenness to enter this world. And so the solution to brokenness is sin, uh, is the forgiveness of sins. And the, and the solution to uh, that forgiveness also encompasses with it material bodily resurrection. That's kind of the point in the, in the rest of the New Testament. But again, don't just take my word for it. For example, Luke chapter 7, uh, there's this woman, uh, a, a very sinful woman who is aware that she's sinful. This is in chapter 7, verse 36, where the, the story starts. But I'm just going to be reading a quote from, uh, from verse 47. So Jesus is, is talking with Pharisees, and uh, these woman, this woman comes in. Uh, she anoints his feet. Um, and, and Jesus responds in a, in a strange way to the Pharisees, but in a way that's rather pointed. Um, he says, therefore, I tell you, he's talking to the Pharisees, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But, who, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. And so he turns and says to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Same question we just read a couple of chapters ago. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So she's freed from sin, yes, but she's freed from sin, not so she can go on sinning. She's freed from sin to go in a new material bodily existence forward. See that? So he's saving her not just from her sins, the consequence of sin, but also from the power of sin that it had over her beforehand. Now, he, now she can go forward in peace. And there, there's one more example of this um, Jesus saving sinners holy. Uh, and it comes out of Luke 19. It's at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It has this, uh, Jesus is talking to Zacchaeus, another story that somehow transcends the gospel of Luke and makes it into basically every children's book that you might lay your hands on. Uh, Zacchaeus uh, finds himself unworthy of salvation and yet wants to be close to Jesus, wants to encounter him. And uh, he responds in faith. And so the declaration of Jesus to Zacchaeus um, is that it is well with him. Uh, verse 9 of Luke chapter 19, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he, that is Zacchaeus, is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. So here's uh, Luke writing to Theophilus. He says, I'm talking about the stuff that Jesus accomplished in his life. And here's Jesus saying, here's the thing that the son of man came to do, to seek and to save the lost. But when, I, when we say to seek and to save, what, is, what does he mean by save? He means forgiveness of sins, yes, but also salvation of the whole person. 
And you're going to see how that plays out in, in the book of Acts. For instance, the Christian community is different than the world's community. Uh, there's a different way that wealth is distributed. There's a different way that gifts are distributed. Um, yeah, so the Christian community becomes different because of the kind of Savior that Jesus is. And similarly, uh, as Christians, we are new creations in Christ. This, this is not going to be an idea that's new to you. You've heard me talk about this before. When we say we're new creations as Christians, that's not a, a fanciful idea. That means that at some point in the future, again, we're going to escape our bodies and be ghost people in the sky who are then freed from sin. The idea is we're freed from sin now. As Christians, as new creations, we are freed from sin. Let me give you an illustration of this. Um, uh, you might not like this illustration. It's okay. It has a little bit to do with animal cruelty, so we'll get there. Um, have any of you seen uh, elephants in the circus? You, you know what I'm talking about, when you in, at least maybe in a cartoon growing up or something like that. Elephants are used in the circus to perform all kinds of you know, funny acts. They'll make them stand on their hind legs. They'll make them uh, walk in like a Congo line together. They'll make them do things to be entertainment to the crowd. Um, elephants, by nature, if you go to the savanna or to uh, uh, any kind of place where you see them in the wild, you will not see elephants standing on two legs and walking in Congo lines. They train elephants to do that kind of thing for entertainment purposes. But uh, you, might have, you might have wondered, at least some people have, how do you take an elephant that is immensely powerful, way more powerful than the, thing, than the people who tame the elephant, how does that elephant obey them, possibly even against its will? An elephant doesn't by nature do those things. So how do the trainers get the elephant to behave in that kind of way? Well, they, they train the elephant basically from when it's a baby, a small elephant, to do those kinds of things. They, they train it from the time of its youth up into obeying them and obeying their, their instructions. Probably the chief example of this is, is how they keep the elephant around when, when they have to go off and, you know, take a break. You know, they're not watching this elephant 24-7. So what they do is, when the elephant is a baby, they take a little wooden stake and a chain, and they stake the wooden stake into the ground, and they attach the chain around the elephant's leg, and a baby elephant cannot break itself free from that chain. Baby elephants are too weak to break free from that little setup. And so what the elephants eventually do is they stop trying to break free, and so by the time you have a, a multi, uh, a huge beast that could easily break the chain and pull the stake out of the ground, they don't do that because they've learned, they've learned that this is something that is too powerful for them, so they're not going to break free. And so when you have these giant elephants, you can keep them around just by tying a chain to its leg and then staking it into the ground. Even though it can break the stake legitimately, it does not do so because it has been taught that it is a slave to this stake. Uh, where I want to draw the parallels here uh, is that if you are a Christian, uh, being a Christian from death to life, from old man to new man, is a little bit like you're a baby elephant one instance, and then the next instance you're a full-grown adult elephant. Okay? This is not like you graduate over time and become more mature. No, no, no. From an instant, you have the Holy Spirit within you. You are a new creation in Christ. The old man was unable to break free from sin and the chain enslaved with it, right? That little wooden stake and that chain was sufficient to keep you in bondage. And when you become a Christian, when you become that full-blown, powerful elephant, well, you have to, in some sense, break free from that mental inability that sin has to hold you. Uh, 
as Christians, we often feel as though we are still slaves to sin. And in some sense, that's true. We do give into sin and to temptation. But it is manifestly different to say that you give into sin uh, or to say that you are a slave to sin. So why do Christians often view themselves as helpless and despondent and victims of sin in their new life? Well, it's, it's because we have this learned behavior basically from the time of our youth that sin has a hold on us and therefore we cannot break its hold. So uh, partially what Jesus is doing when he liberates people from their sin, he not only gives them the ability to be free from sin, but he also says things like, now obey my teachings and instructions, which involve things like not sinning. So uh, you become able to break the bondage of sin, not because of you, but because of the Holy Spirit. And you also ought to enact that and walk that out in your daily life. One of the regular tools that Christians have to do this is confession and repentance. Okay? So if Jesus is indeed Savior, this is part of who he is as the risen Lord, well, how does that affect us on the ground as we live as Christians? How, how should Theophilus hear that when Luke is writing to Theophilus? Well, what he should hear is, well, I'm a sinner, liberated from my sins because of Christ's grace. So suppose I sin tomorrow or the next day or next week. What ought I to do with that new sin that I have accumulated? Well, you ought to confess the sin and repent of that sin and turn back and follow Christ. This is the thing and the teaching that Luke has in his gospel and that the book of Acts has, is that we ought to regularly confess sin because it has no power over us. And the way we are regularly given grace to walk free of sin is by confession and repentance. This is uh, why Christians regularly have to remind themselves of the gospel itself. So if you're a Christian walking with the Lord for any length of time, uh, confession and repentance is as necessary for your Christian walk as is food for a human to survive or air for a human to breathe. You cannot go any length of time without confession or repentance and expect a healthy Christian walk. And that's because Jesus is Lord over sin and has the authority to forgive sins. So if you need your sins forgiven, who do you go to to forgive sins? You go to Jesus because he is the one who has the power to forgive sins. So practically, for those of you who practice family worship, something you should regularly incorporate into that practice is confession of sin and assurance of pardon. That you are not only a sinner, that you confess that, but also that you are assured that Christ has forgiven you of your sins. We print that in the bulletin every single week. Uh, you can take this home, tuck it in your Bible. When you do family worship, uh, you can read that. As you confess your sins uh, to one another, you can read that, confess that sins together, and then be assured of the words of pardon that Christ has for you. That is because Christ is truly Lord who forgives sins. And if you don't uh, practice family worship because you're not married, the regular confession of sin is something you also ought to do as well. It's, it's still something you ought to do for your Christian walk. Meaning, as you read the word, you don't just read the Bible and study it so that you know more information. You respond to the Bible in the way the Bible tells you to respond. Meaning, confessing your sins, repenting of your sins, walking in newness of life. That's a good regular rhythm to approach the Bible in as you study it. So, here, at least uh, in summary of that very long first point, uh, Jesus is the risen Lord who saves sinners in their totality. Body and soul, he saves them. And we're going to see how that plays out in the book of Acts, but we need that theme in the forefront of our minds as we are in Luke. Now, there's only one other point that I have. It's a much smaller point, so you can breathe a sigh of relief after that first one. 
Jesus is the risen Lord, who is the completion of all the Old Testament messianic expectations. You don't need to write that down. Uh, very simply, Jesus is the risen Lord, who is the Messiah. So, uh, one of the things that Luke tells us when he's recording Jesus and Jesus' speech to his disciples is he tells us on, on a number of different occasions that Jesus refers to himself as this figure known as the Son of Man. I've mentioned this a number of times as we've touched on the Son of Man. But Luke seems to regularly remind us that Jesus is the, the Messiah who is the Savior of Old Testament Israel. Uh, in fact, in one of the texts we read, uh, the the people ask John the Baptist if he is the Messiah, and he says, no, the one coming after me is the Messiah. And then, obviously, that's Jesus in the gospel. But uh, if, you, if you consider just a couple of accounts, and since we're in Luke 19, we'll work backwards for this. So turn to Luke chapter 18, where you see Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man. Luke chapter 18 and verse 31. He says, uh, See, we, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, see, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and we will be mocked and he will be shamefully treated and he will be spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. So who is Jesus? Jesus says of himself, I am the Son of Man. And this is what I mean by that, that I am to be betrayed, mocked, beaten, killed, and that I will rise from the grave, victorious over sins. Uh, if, you, if you turn back earlier to, for example, Luke chapter 9, you'll see this as well. Jesus, again, speaking of himself as the Son of Man. And by the way, there's probably like 15 or 20 different references of, to the Son of Man in the Gospel of Luke, so I'm just, I'm just picking a couple of them. Luke chapter 9, this is in verse uh, 58. Uh, Jesus speaking of himself, he says, uh, or he's, he's speaking to his followers about himself. Uh, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So the Son of Man is the Messiah of, of Israel. He is the Savior of Israel. And also he has a human body where he doesn't have a place to lay his head when he sleeps. You see, this is kind of an interesting picture. Son of man, all-powerful to forgive sins, powerful to rise from the grave, yet can be beaten and killed, and also needs to sleep because he has nowhere to lay his head when he goes to rest. It's an interesting idea. So uh, Jesus is this son of man figure, the Messiah of the Old Testament. What Jesus is doing is he's making sense of a bunch of Old Testament expectations that speak about the Messiah as though he is human, yes, and as though he is divine, also true. And Jesus encapsulates both of those things. Um, the, the only other text that I think is, is worth looking at uh, for this one is Luke chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. Luke chapter 6 verse 5. It's earlier in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus responding to the Pharisees says this, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So, very simply put, Jesus sees himself as the God-man, the Son of Man, who is the Messiah of Israel. And Luke kind of links all throughout his Gospel that this is who Jesus is. That's really important because when you get to Acts, what the apostles do is they quote the Old Testament. And they say, Jesus is risen, the completion of this Old Testament, therefore, respond in faith. Or as uh, you might read in Acts 20, Paul is being tried by the Jews, uh, and he says, it is, account, it is on account of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
So he thinks that Jesus, as the Messiah, and as the resurrected Messiah, is the key to understanding his message and his gospel. But those aren't bare facts. Those have implications to them. So Jesus is this Old Testament uh, Messiah figure who has come now, and he's not just the Messiah of the Jews in, in the Gospel of Luke. He's the Messiah also of the Gentiles. That's clear, as I read in the first quote, uh, he's the light to the Gentiles, revelation to the Gentiles, and glory for Israel. Well, all throughout the Gospel of Luke, we don't have time to look at that, uh, but all throughout the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke includes various references to Gentile peoples or peoples who would have been considered outside of normative expectations for Jewish salvation. For example, a prostitute who he says her sins are forgiven. For example, a tax collector like Zacchaeus, who's a traitor to his people. And Jesus says, salvation has found his house. Or as you're going to see in the book of Acts, the Gentiles who stand around the temple receive Jesus as their savior. And sometimes the Jews reject Jesus as their savior. And so you have this interesting thing where the gospel is going forth also to the Gentiles. Okay, so in summary, the the point that I'm, I'm making here is that in the Gospel of Luke, the central point is that Jesus is a risen Lord and that that at least takes on two different things that we have to keep in our, in our minds as we go into the book of Acts. One of those is that he's a Savior and the second of that is that he is the expected Old Testament Savior. They're kind of the same point. Uh, and what I, you can summarize that all by saying he's the risen Lord. He's the, the risen Savior that the Old Testament expected and because he's a risen Savior, that affects sin and how sin is dealt with. Now, this is contra other views of Jesus that would say Jesus came to liberate us from material oppression, and that's it. Uh, Earlier, I spoke about the kind of false salvation that we are just these spirits who need to be rescued from our bodies. That's a a false kind of half salvation. Uh, So too is the salvation that Jesus offers as uh, he makes us all equal to one another and therefore uh, something like communism uh, or uh, liberation theology, if you're more familiar with that. Um, that's also a kind of half salvation because you don't actually need Jesus to accomplish that. Uh, Just like you don't need Jesus to accomplish the spirit freedom kind of thing. You can have nirvana or Buddha or something like that to accomplish spiritual liberation. Um, You you don't need Jesus to accomplish bodily liberation on its own as well or material liberation. For instance, uh, if someone's wealthy enough, they can take another person and lift them out of poverty. So that person can be the savior materially of another person. Or you could give someone a job, and that could lift them out of material poverty. Or uh, you could take someone and give them an inheritance, and that could lift them out of material poverty. My point is that if material uh, liberation theology is true, then Jesus is not necessary as a savior, because there's a myriad of other ways that you can save someone from material imprisonment or being impoverished in that kind of way. But Jesus is a savior of both body and soul, uh, this life and of the life to come. And so what that means is he is the one and only savior of these things. It's the only position in all of really religious thought where both body and soul are resurrected into an afterlife where the whole person in goodness is renewed by the grace of God and also the spirit is renewed by the grace of God so that they're a sinless soul with a perfect body unaffected and uncorrupted by sin. That's all kind of coming to pass in the teaching of Jesus. Okay, so that's all that is uh, really here for the text. Um, what I'd like to do in the next like two minutes, if you give me that time, is to just look at the, the text, uh, the songs that we're going to sing in a few moments after we take the Lord's Supper together, how those songs allude to the things that I just talked about. So they're printed for you in the bulletin, so I can do this this week. So uh, for instance, if you look at the first one, Ancient of Days, 
and you see a reference at the end of every single verse that uh, my God is the Ancient of Days, my God is the Ancient of Days, my God is the Ancient of Days, and then we are standing face to face in the presence of the Ancient of Days. What that's affirming is uh, this text from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, uh, where there's this figure known as the Ancient of Days who is Yahweh from the Old Testament, but it's also something else. There's this figure known as the Son of Man, who I just referenced a couple of times in the Gospel of Luke, who comes to the Ancient of Days, receives from the Ancient of Days authority and worship, and then is also worshipped as God. So when we sing that song, my God is the Ancient of Days, we're not just talking about the Father is the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man is also the Ancient of Days who receives that worship. Okay? If you look at the second song, in Grace Alone, uh, if you look at the third verse, so there's verse, chorus, and then verse, uh, it starts off with, you left your home to seek out the lost. That sounds awful lot like what Jesus says to Zacchaeus, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And similarly, two lines down, but Jesus, your face was set. That's a reference to something that comes directly out of Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem to accomplish the salvation of his people, namely by death and crucifixion and resurrection. That's Luke chapter 9, verse 51. So uh, that's Ancient of Days and Grace Alone. Now, the last song, um, it's kind of filled throughout, but this is In Christ Alone. Uh, there's a number, number of ways we could spin this one. But uh, if you just look at the historical account in the Gospel of Luke of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that's basically verses, or sorry, that's basically verses 2 and verses 3 of In Christ Alone. So, for instance, it says, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. That's Luke chapter 18, verse 32 to 33, where Jesus says the Son of Man is to be betrayed and beaten and crucified and then on the third day to rise. And also Luke specifically notes that Jesus was laid in a tomb by Joseph in Luke 23. And verse 3 of In Christ Alone starts off with, there in the ground his body lay. So what am I, when I'm saying all of these things, what I'm saying is our theology that we believe as Christians and we get from the text of Scripture is also something we ought to regularly take up in worship and singing. And just as Tim said, when we confess our sins in the pastoral prayer, the confession of sin, the assurance of pardon, we don't do that mindlessly. I also don't want us as a church to sing mindlessly. I want us to understand the theology that undergirds these songs that we sing so that we can also, uh, I think, get more delight out of them, get more rejoicing out of them when we actually understand that they're rooted in the text and therefore they minister to our souls. So with that, let me close in prayer and we can turn to that singing. Father, you are our King, our Lord, our Savior, and our friend. You are the God who has come to seek and to save the lost, the one who was preached thousands of years ago and has been preached forever until now. Lord, you are the one who is our only hope in life and in death. We pray that your grace and your spirit would abide on us so we can fix our eyes upon you, so we can marinate our minds and our hearts in the truth of your word and who you are, resurrected and ascended on high as Savior of the world. And that that would minister to us as we go tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, into the week, that we would know the joy of that salvation, which has been proclaimed and is being proclaimed, and we ought to continually remember as true for us as well. 
We pray this all together in Christ's name. Amen.